Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God which engages us this day is a portion of the epistle lesson read previously, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23, where we read, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Thus far the text. Dear friends in Christ, Today, as we join together with Christians around the world in continuing the celebration of our Lord's resurrection from the dead, we exchange the greeting that Christians have exchanged for centuries, the greeting that summarizes the observations of the women at the tomb that first Easter morning, the greeting that expresses our hope for eternity. He is risen. And that changes everything. Although, it seems as though it didn't change everything, at least for some of the Christians in Corinth in the first century AD, those to whom Paul was writing. Oh, they confessed and believed in the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul can begin 1 Corinthians 15, by recounting for them the events that they believed, that Christ was put to death for our transgressions in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day that he was raised again in accordance with the scriptures. And then Paul can go on to list six of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brethren at one time, most who were still alive, then to James, then to all the apostles, and then Paul recounts as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we find out in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15 that apparently this physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ hadn't changed everything, at least for some of the people. For some of the people, we read, were thinking that the resurrection, the physical, bodily resurrection from the dead was not possible for them. Perhaps they had been influenced by the Greek philosophers and thinkers of the day who held that the soul or the spiritual part of a person was good and was to be nurtured, but the body, the physical component of existence, was nothing more than the prison or the dungeon for the soul and that the purpose of life was to free the soul or the spirit from its imprisonment in the body. Any talk of a resurrection of the body would be laughable to them. And so some in Corinth were operating with a spiritual contradiction. 
They believe that Christ rose from the dead physically, bodily, but on the other hand, they were denying that a physical, bodily resurrection was possible for them or for anyone else. To confront this contradiction, Paul places before them two individuals who walked the face of this earth, who forever changed everything in the relationship between God and humankind, Adam and Jesus Christ. And although both of these individuals changed everything in the relationship between God and humankind, what a contrast in the way they changed everything. Paul begins with Adam. By a man, sin entered the world. In Adam, all died. One can almost hear the echo, the words of God to Adam in the garden. You may certainly eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall die. In Adam all die, writes Paul. And ever since that time, we've been living with the horrible way that Adam changed everything. Each and every day, the obituary sections in the newspapers give us a daily catalog of those who have died as a direct result of the way Adam changed everything. And on a more personal level, we know that death still rips from our presence in this world. Our grandparents, our parents, our siblings, our spouse, our friends, and at times, even our children. In Adam, all die. Not only the ceasing of a heartbeat and a pulse and respiration, but also the eternal separation and estrangement from God. But not long after he sinned in the Garden of Eden, Adam also heard a word of promise from God, a word that God was going to send forth one who would also change everything, this time in a wonderful way. And in Jesus Christ, God kept that promise. What a contrast between the way the two changed everything. Adam was disobedient. Christ was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Adam sinned. Christ was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Adam died as a result of his own sin. Christ, the sinless, spotless, blameless Lamb of God, voluntarily laid down his own life as a payment for the sins of the world. And his physical, bodily resurrection once again from the grave is proof positive that God has accepted his payment as payment in full for your sins, for my sins, and for the sins of the world. And that's why Paul can talk about Christ and his resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Now, Paul's hearers would probably have understood what he meant in saying the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But first fruits is not terminology that we commonly use today in our everyday discussion. It is seated in the Old Testament, in the agricultural setting, of course, where the first fruits or the first products of the harvest were to be brought before God and brought as an offering of thanks to him before any other harvest was to be done. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 23, we have God's procedures laid out for the festival of the first fruits, saying that the first sheaves of barley were to be brought before God and waved before him as an offering of thanksgiving, recognizing that not only those sheaves of barley, but the entire harvest left out in that field and yet to be harvested is a gift from God but also recognizing that in addition to those first sheaves, there is a rich, abundant, bountiful harvest out in the field yet to be brought in. So also with Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection from the dead, body and spirit, is the first harvest, we might say, from the tomb. And like that barley harvest, there is a rich, abundant, bountiful harvest yet to be brought in. The souls and the bodies of all who before Christ trusted in the promise that God would send a Redeemer for his people, the souls and bodies of all who since that time have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. That's why Paul can say that in Christ shall all be made alive. What a contrast. Adam changed things from life to death. Christ has changed things from death to life. But if we're not careful, we can slip into some of the same types of temptations that the Christians in the city of Corinth were engaged in in that first century AD. For example, when we talk on, when we confess on Sunday that we believe in the resurrection of the dead, and yet our attitudes, our actions, our reactions to events, to, to other people, to issues in life, reveal that we are so focused and so fixated on the here and now on this little slice of time in eternity as if there was nothing more yet to come. Or on Sundays, when we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body, and yet speak about those who have died in the Lord, soul now with the Lord, body still here in the earth, as though they have already received everything they are going to receive from the Lord. To do so is to go and see a three-act play only staying for the first two acts, missing the wonderful ending yet to come. Our text would move us to look beyond Christ's resurrection to the dead, to look to that great day yet to come when Christ will return to change everything once again and once again in a wonderful way. On that day, 
when the bodies of all who have died in the Lord will be raised again from the dead. And what a sight that will be. Souls and bodies brought back together once again. Bodies changed to be like his glorious body, no longer bearing the the effects of sin as a result of his renewing and regeneration. Those who are alive on that day changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as the mortal puts on immortality once again as a result of God's regenerating work. That day when death itself is rendered helpless and goes out of existence. Christ will once again change everything in a wonderful way. And we got just a small glimpse of that when Christ walked this earth, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, mobility to the lame, healing all kinds of illnesses and diseases, bringing three people that we know of back from death to life once again, not only to demonstrate for all that he was the promised Messiah, doing the things the promised Messiah was predicted to do, but demonstrating also that now God was intervening powerfully, personally, to change everything culminating with the cross, the empty tomb, and the physically resurrected Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, at the end of this chapter, can taunt death and say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so on this day, we join with Christians around the world, exchanging the greeting that articulates our eternal hope. He is risen. And that changes everything. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, guard our hearts and our minds in this one true faith unto life everlasting. Amen.